Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Friend, do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? At that time Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to um, Cephas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus, so they could put him, put him to death. But they could not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that the men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit on his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? We'll look forward to hearing what you've got to say, Andrew. Let me pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we want to thank you uh, for the message that you've placed on Andrew's heart. Lord, we, we thank you for the scripture. We thank you that we can be obedient to that. Lord, please uh, be with us now as we listen. Open our hearts, open our ears, so that we can be challenged by what it is that you want to teach us this morning. Thank you, Lord, for Andrew and his faithfulness uh, to you. And we look forward to being challenged. In your name, amen. Thanks, Mike. Well, uh, keep your Bibles open in front of you as we um, read these um, two passages that are joined together, which are essentially the... uh, the legal situation that Jesus was faced with um, as he came to the end of his earthly ministry. As we have the Bibles open, you'll remember we've been following Judas for the last couple of passages in Matthew. We saw Judas selling himself out in verses 14 to 16 for 30 silver coins. And we also then in verses 23 to 25 saw Judas being named by Jesus as the betrayer, which... Of course, Judas Judas was quick to lie about it. Here in this text, again, Judas reappears in verses 47 to 49. And it's a disingenuous situation. Everyone knew what he'd done. 
Everyone knew what he was going to do, and yet his sinister motives are still meant to, as you read the text, feel a little bit hidden until the very last minute. This is how Matthew describes what's going on. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Which is a bit strange, isn't it? Because everyone knew who Jesus was and the crowd was around. But nevertheless, this is the signal. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And despite Peter, James and John's failure overnight in Gethsemane in keeping vigil, Jesus has, as good as he can, prepared himself and is ready for what is to come. As ready as one can be. And Jesus says, this is what Matthew writes, Jesus Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend, in verse 50. The way I read this is it's like there's one last final option that Judas is not going to take. Judas is in overdrive now. Judas is going to get the job done and claim his money. But Jesus is still calling him friend and reaching out as though there was an opportunity for him not to do this. But what is friendship for Judas when there's 30 pieces of silver to be had? What is integrity? What is loyalty I'm going to get another microphone because this one has got firecrackers in it. How's that, Grant? Hopefully this one doesn't have the same um, little things in it. What is loyalty? What is integrity? What is anything to Judas when money can get in the way? What do you do when there is an apparent threat? What do you do? when there's an apparent threat to you. Some people freeze, some people flee, some people fight. It's a basic wiring in the human brain. At the top of the brain stem, somewhere in here around the back, um, lies the most primitive part of our brain. It's called the amygdala. And it reacts in threatening situations. And it floods the body with chemicals, causing that flight or fight or freeze response. Now, the amygdala, when it's functioning well and it's causing panic, is really useful in an emergency, when something's threatening or in a medical situation. But the amygdala... I promise you I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm just trying to speak. Just put up with me. I know I can see the guys at the back working hard to see if they can do anything. But the amygdala is not a good master. Those basic responses of flight and fright and freeze are not always the best options. So the brain has also got another part that functions here at the front, in the frontal cortex. It's right there under your forehead. And it's the part of the brain that thinks things through and develops strategies and considers alternative solutions. So say you put your hand over a hot stove. The amygdala kicks in and immediately, you know that situation before you've even thought about it, you found your hand coming off the heat. That's that part of the brain, the amygdala, working the way it's meant to, saying danger. And it pulls back before you've even thought about it. That's good. You shouldn't need to think about it. You can trust your amygdala to save you from getting burned. Evasive action in that case is good. 
But you can't live your whole life like that, can you? You can't react like that with fight or flight or freeze to every situation. You can't react to a waiter taking your order. Bang. I don't like that. You make me panic. Or the waiter approaches you and you tear out of the restaurant. You can't do that. Or you can't react dangerously and violently to the sound of the vacuum cleaner. We have to think things through and develop strategies. Not everything is life-threatening. And sometimes we even need to hold ourselves in a situation that we might not be comfortable in. After all, we need to learn how to cook on a hot stove or get something out of a hot oven. Our amygdala is saying, that's hot, don't go there, but we have to think through and work out a strategy with a hot towel or an oven mitt and learn how to get something out of that dangerous place safely so that we can use it for good. Kids learn this um, at the pool when they learn how to swim underwater. The amygdala says you can't breathe, get out of here, but kids learn to hold their breath and survive and they have a bit of fun and a bit of adventure. This is what Paul is referring to in Romans 12.2 when he wrote about renewing the mind. This is what Paul said in Romans 12.2. Do not conform to the basic pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Where's this conversation going? Well, have a look at Peter's response to the scene that's right here in front of us. Verses 50 and 51. Jesus replied to Judas, do what you came for, friend. The the men stepped forward, seizing Jesus and arrested him. And with that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, we think it was Peter from another gospel, drew it out and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Dangerous situation, immediate reaction, lashing out. In this case, Peter's response was fight, a hot-headed response, which seems to be true of his character in other gospel accounts. Perhaps Peter was a bit reactive to his poor effort at keeping vigil overnight and thought he better make up. He probably was, but he's going to fail at another test in next week's passage, which Ian's going to bring to us. So if there is some rearguard action here from Peter in this scene, it's going to be certainly short-lived. What we have here is Peter in fight mode. But worse, Peter's action was just continuing the same old worldly pattern of violence and force. And Jesus was very clear that he came for something entirely different. Jesus came that the kingdom of heaven might come on earth as it is in heaven. And the kingdom of heaven is not about fight or flight or freeze. The kingdom of heaven is what uh, Paul refers to in Romans true at Romans 12:2 when he says we're able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Kingdom of uh, the kingdom of heaven coming on earth. Remember what we were taught to uh, that Jesus taught His disciples to pray, and we're taught to pray in Matthew 6:10, Your kingdom come, Your will be done, on earth, as it is in heaven. Jesus came to inaugurate His kingdom. And it's different to the way the world operates. And Peter had to learn that lesson. And then Jesus reinforces his message with this explanation in verses 52 to 54. He says, put your sword back in its place. Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. 
Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at, put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then, Jesus asked, would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Jesus came to do something entirely different to the way this world is organised. And in this case, Peter was the one learning the lesson. Jesus is leading an entirely different movement than the world has ever seen. The practices in Jesus' movement are entirely different and the path he must take to access, to the task that he must achieve to access, access to God are entirely costly. Peter is slow to understand this, like us, but he will get there soon. Hang on. And then Jesus anchors what is happening with Old Testament testimony and prophecy, saying this is to be fulfilled. Of course, they could have come and taken Jesus at any time if they wanted. Jesus had been in the temple and the temple courts regularly and could have simply been followed and seized. Matthew wrote in verse 55 and 56, In that hour Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Peter's heroic effort with the sword was short-lived. And again our Lord is deserted, left for dead by his friends, but this time literally left for dead. The anointed one of God must suffer and in so doing fulfil the promises of Scripture. The Old Testament had described and written of what was coming for the Lord's anointed. David cried out in Psalm 22 of what would happen to the Lord's anointed shepherd. Read all 31 verses of Psalm 22 this afternoon and you can ref- or, or, or each of these passages I'm going to refer to because we don't have time to open them all up. I'm just going to take some brief examples. But each of these Old Testament passages were describing what would come for the Lord's anointed and Jesus knew that this was the moment. This is just a section of Psalm 22. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from my sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. Jesus knew knew. This would be fulfilled. Jesus knew this was the moment. Another example in Isaiah 53 predicted what was coming for the anointed one, the Messiah. Again, the whole chapter refers to what Jesus was enduring, but here's a sample. This is what Isaiah said. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. 
We are all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He, is oppressed and aff- he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And so it is being fulfilled in this passage in front of us. One more Old Testament prophecy of what this scene would happen in. If you read Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah, chapters 12 and 13, again, we don't have time for all of that. But he predicted these events. Here's a couple of verses of Zechariah, verses uh, 1 to 3. A prophecy, a word of the Lord concerning Israel. The Lord who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundation of the earth and who forms the human spirit with a person, declares, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. On that day when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. All who try to move it will injure themselves. Let's make one really important observation before we move on. We have this terrible scene here of Jesus continually being betrayed by his disciples. These are people who have become incredibly close to Jesus. While they might not be cashing in on 30 pieces of silver like Judah was, Uh, Judas was, they are still nonetheless disowning Jesus and betraying him and fleeing. And disowning a friend in my book is the same as betraying a friend in the crucial moment. It's a pretty depressing scene. But having looked at the disciples, take a closer look at Jesus' response. For even though their friendship is tinged with great sadness and betrayal, Jesus is still loyal to his friends. Even when Judas was dobbing him in with a kiss and a hug, Jesus offered him a way out. And when Peter, James and John failed him overnight by not keeping guard, he offered them another chance and then another chance and then a third chance. And even here, when the disciples desert him again and leave him all alone before the Sanhedrin council, and soon when Peter will deny him three times before the cock crows at dawn, Jesus will still return to them and believe in them and commission them to carry on his work. Sometimes we overemphasize the importance of us being faithful which of course is a sign of Christian maturity and is important. But friends, remember this. No matter how faithful or otherwise you are, Jesus is amazingly faithful to his friends. And I know no better example than this scene that we've been following these weeks. Jesus is faithful. Jesus is the definition of faithfulness. Jesus is always faithful to his friends. When John saw a vision of Jesus in heaven in Revelation 19, this is what John saw. John wrote, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider, Jesus, is called faithful and true. That is whom our Lord is. 
Paul reminds Timothy, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. The writer to the Hebrews reminds us that Jesus is unchanging in his faithfulness. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. Be encouraged, friend. Be encouraged that our Lord Jesus Christ is faithful to you right where you are yesterday, today and tomorrow. He is faithful to you. We owe it ourselves to try to be faithful back. But you can depend. Don't depend on your faithfulness. Depend on Jesus' faithfulness. That is the rock of your life. Amen. I can remember being at Sydney Airport once. I was walking in that long terminal between, in the Qantas area, between gates 1 and 15, a big long area where lots of people come and go. And I was interrupted by a traveller who was hopelessly lost. Uh, He was uh, wandering around. It looked like he'd done a few laps of the terminal and he didn't quite know where to go. He needed to go to the international terminal. And unlike in Melbourne where you just go from Terminal 1 to Terminal 2 or Terminal 3 to Terminal 2, in Sydney you have to catch a bus across to the other side of the airport to get to the international terminal. So this gentleman had been walking around for quite a while it looked like and he was very lost and he didn't know what to do. And this particular gentleman could not read or speak a word of English. He held out his boarding pass to me and he showed it to me. That was all he had that uh, hopefully some kind stranger would be able to help him. And as I read his boarding pass, I could see immediately that his next flight was an international flight and he needed to go across on the bus to the international terminal. So there we were, the two of us in the same location, but without any common language in which to communicate. I knew what needed to happen, but he was the one who needed to do it and I couldn't do it for him. So I tried to describe about a bus and have you ever played charades? How would you do a bus? It's quite hard to signal, (laughs) it's quite hard to signal what a bus is. I mean, yeah, anyway, um, I was trying to do that and I found myself speaking slower and slower and trying to be more clearer and trying to be louder and of course it's all in English, it's completely useless. And I don't know why it is that when you're trying to be clearer to someone in a foreign language, you speak slower and louder. Makes no difference at all. But there I was, doing what I say you shouldn't do. And he he didn't know what to do. So eventually I worked out the only way I was going to help him is I said, come with me. And I walked with him to that little gate area where the bus leaves from. And I explained to a staff member that this gentleman doesn't speak a word of English and this is his boarding pass and he needs to go across the terminal and I pointed to him and he thanked me and um, that was it. Amazing how far you can get with a bit of body language. But that was all I could do. Now our scene in this passage this morning now turns to Jesus and Caiaphas, the high priest, who both seem to have a similar kind of problem to the one that I had with that gentleman at Sydney Airport. You see, they both speak, the two characters now in this scene, both speak entirely different languages. 
Sure, they both speak Aramaic. I'm not talking about the actual language they speak. I'm speaking metaphorically about the language that comes from their worldview and the way they understand what's going on in this scene. Caiaphas is schooled in the law and the place and the importance of Israel and particularly his role in the one who had supreme, as the one who had supreme authority over the temple. As high priest, he'd been anointed as the guardian of the temple, unless the Lord's Messiah, which literally means the anointed one, came. And in the midst of that role, Caiaphas had another role, which was keeping the peace with Rome, the occupiers of Jerusalem. And as, all, and as a part of that, it involved keeping peace, especially when troublemakers came at festivals like during the Passover to stir things up and cause a bit of religious ferment. And Caiaphas knew that Jesus was one of these people and he'd been leading a movement that spoke a lot about the kingdom of heaven and laid some sort of claim to the temple itself. Caiaphas's language was politics. Jesus had an entirely different language. We've been learning and paying attention to it now for 26 chapters of Matthew's Gospel. It's best summarised in his policy speech in chapter 5. And it's repeated in miracles and teaching and, tempt and, his, and his temptation and defeat of the devil in the desert and his subversive activity. And it will soon go and pass the ultimate test, defeating sin's hold on humanity and death itself. But this is Jesus' language, which is so different to Caiaphas's. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Luke summarizes Jesus' speech this way. Luke says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has set me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Either way, these statements are a language entirely different to Caiaphas's language and worldview. So much so that Jesus and Caiaphas may as well be speaking gibberish to each other because they have no understanding of what the other one is doing. Well, sorry, that Jesus understands what Caiaphas is doing, but they have no connection in what they're doing. Caiaphas was running an institution and keeping the various interests and powers calm. I'm sure he was doing his religious duty well, but he was missing what God was up to, even when the Son of God was in front of him. We have this challenge too, don't we? I have this challenge. 
I'm not speaking about anything specific, but each of us can get locked into ways of doing things, traditional ways of doing things, old ways of doing things, certain ways of doing things, that we can miss what God is up to. Caiaphas is not alone. Church history is full of examples of saints missing the new thing that God is up to as he's bringing about the kingdom of heaven on earth. In Matthew 9, Jesus spoke about this issue using the metaphors of sowing onto old material and, on, and new and old wineskins. Jesus said it this way, this is our challenge. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. This is Caiaphas's problem. He is missing what God is doing, even though the Son of God is right there in front of him. So in the scene before us, knowing that anything Jesus said could and would be used against him, Jesus stays silent. Besides, Caiaphas wouldn't have understood or wanted to understand anyway. But the high priest is anxious to get some sort of semi-legal conviction. Matthew records the scene in verse 62 and 63. He says, Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is the testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Then and only then Jesus speaks in reply. But he does so on his own terms and uses his own language, that of the Old Testament that was referring to where we've just been. Jesus says, you have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The passage Jesus is referring to here, of course, is Daniel chapter 7. Excuse me. I've got a sneeze and it's not coming. <laughs> Matthew chapter 7. Verses seven to uh, Matthew chapter seven, verses thirteen and fourteen. This is the vision Daniel saw. This is now being fulfilled in this moment by Jesus. Daniel saw this vision. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into His presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. But Jesus' reference doesn't stop there and there is a sting in Jesus' reference to Daniel 7. Because also in Daniel 7, Daniel saw four beasts and the fourth beast was waging war against the true representative of God's people, God's anointed. You can read about that in Daniel 7, verses 7 to 11. The two worldviews, the two languages that Jesus and Caiaphas were speaking could no longer coexist. 
they had come to a head. And Matthew records it this way. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He's worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Caiaphas's language of power and force begins. Jesus' language of servanthood and sacrifice yields to the Father. The physical brutality begins. We'll continue this scene next week as we continue to move our way through Matthew. But friends, as we do remember, Jesus is faithful. He is going to endure, he has endured, all that we are going to travel through in the name of faithfulness. In the name of obedience and faithfulness to his Father, in the name of faithfulness to all of humanity, so that there can be a way to defeat sin and death and that heaven and earth can connect again. Let us pray. Loving God, this is indeed holy ground. In the scriptures, as we see heaven and earth connecting and yet it being so violent and horrible. And yet your will is going to be fulfilled and your purposes are going to triumph. We do know the end of the story. But we marvel as we pause here at the depth of your faithfulness, at your courage at your love, at your sacrifice for us and for humanity because you are the faithful one. You are the servant one who came that there might be a way. Help us be moved. Help us be troubled. Help us change and respond towards you because of what you have done for us, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. <laughs> Thank you.